following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. We praise God to be together this morning um, as His people. We worship Christ, the risen Christ, who is at the Father's right hand in power, who has given us His Spirit, and we are thankful for what He has called us to do, even as we do it this morning, in making disciples, His commission this call to proclaim Christ to a world that's dying in need of him. Uh, before we start, I just want to publicly thank Dan Carlson for bringing us the word last week. Um, even though it was a little rainy and a little cool at the picnic last week, um, we we're thankful for a faithful word preached um, from John 1. I've thought several times already throughout this week, particularly about that phrase, come and see, about that we ought to call others to come and see and know Jesus Christ. But then also, I've kind of been meditating on the fact that we also are regularly called to come and see, to perceive him as he truly is, not what we want him to be, but rather how the scriptures show us who he is. So I thank you, Dan, so much for, for blessing us with the word last week and for preaching. Let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to the book of Obadiah. Um, if you're visiting with us, I do mean that. I'm serious. We're going to go to the book of Obadiah. So if you go to the index, that's all right. We're going to go to the book of Obadiah. We've been working through the beginning together. Um, and as you guys are turning there, I just want to make a quick comment to those who are at home who can't be with us this morning. We miss you. We long for you to be with us. We love you. And we are praying for you regularly. So we look forward to the day that you'll be back with us. Let's go ahead and read Obadiah 1 through 15 together. And uh, then we will pray. We will specifically be in verses 10 through 14. We've covered 1 through 9. Uh, but we want to read the whole context. So I think it will help us here. So let's start with verse 1. Obadiah 1 through 15, this is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you've been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroys the wise men out of Edom, an understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O T-man, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. 
Do not stand over his survivors in the day of distress. Four, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. Let's pray together. Lord, as we open your word and we hear our brother Obadiah speak to us a prophecy, showing us the truth, a vision of what's happening, of what you are doing, we have our eyes open to the sovereign nature and work of God. Lord, we recognize that the God of Obadiah is our God today, and so we ask that you would have your sovereign hand working in our own hearts to listen to the message that you have for us today. With your power, would you change us? Would you make us humble? Would you please, God, overwhelm our iniquities with your grace? We thank you for what you've done in Jesus, but we ask today that we would grow in that grace, that we might be more like Christ, having joy in our greatest treasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm guessing that there aren't too many people here this morning who are fluent in Latin or many experts in the room on the works of William Shakespeare. However, I would take a guess that most of the adults in this room, and after I make this statement, then all the kids will have heard it too, know these three famous words, et tu brute. In Act 3, Scene 1, Line 77, these words come from the dying lips of Julius Caesar as he's literally been stabbed in the back. Whether or not these words were actually historical is debated. Regardless, it is here that Shakespeare gives us one of the most poignant, bitter responses to utter betrayal by a close friend. The words themselves aren't as important as what's leading up to this that make them so powerful, the background. The story goes that Julius Caesar had become a sensation, powerful, unstoppable hero who had just had victory over Spain. And he returns to Rome with ambitions and power and ready to rule, but not everyone thought that this was such a good idea. In the swirl of opinions and meetings and preparations, uh, one of Caesar's enemies, Cassius, finds the ear of Marcus Brutus, one of Julius Caesar's closest friends. Brutus is an honorable man. He's a noble man. He's a man that's guided by principle and philosophy, but he's inconsistent in his thought process and in his performance. And he can eventually see how, as he talks with Cassius, and strangely how Caesar's rise to power must be stopped or else the way of preservation for the Roman Empire would be at stake. What's, what needs to be preserved is sanctity and longevity of this empire. And so the secret plan is set. It's set in motion and many different people get together in on this assassination. The group of assassins kindly escorts Caesar to the capital without him knowing what's going to happen. And it's it here in front of the senators and all the spectators that the conspirators reach for their weapons, daggers, swords, and plunge them deeply into Julius Caesar, killing him. In this time, this horrific moment, Caesar looks around at the group of assassins and with horror, he notices one of his best friends, Marcus Brutus. And in a moment of utter betrayal, with his dying breaths, he says those famous words, et tu, Brute, even you, Brutus, would treat me like this. Expression, of course, has come to represent the words of those who have experienced utter betrayal by the hand of those closest to them. At the time that Caesar needed support the most 
when all seemed lost, when his only desire is to see a face of a friend and family to help him and be his ally, he realizes that his closest friend has had his hand on the dagger and he has joined the enemies, taking up the knife and plunging it deep into Caesar's body. This is betrayal. This is a story of someone who should have chosen to defend and help and be a friend, but instead turned against him. Today we're coming to a section in Obadiah wherein God explains the betrayal of Judah by Edom. Or if you'd like it in more personal terms, the betrayal of Jacob by his brother Esau. We need to begin by placing this in the context of the whole. Like I said, we've worked through 1 through 9, but now we want to look at 10 through 14. As a reader, let me try to catch us up here so we know where we're at. Obadiah, at the beginning, declares a revelation, a vision from God concerning the country or the, the people of Edom, the nation. God has brought Obadiah into this heavenly council room to see what's going on. He is understanding that God has sent messengers to the surrounding nations and called them to battle against Edom. Obadiah then picks up the message to Edom, and in verses 2 through 9, he goes straight for the throat. He tells them and speaks of arrogant and exalted Edom and tells them that God will bring them down. Utterly despised, small, insignificant, cut off by slaughter. He tells them that their resources, their relationships, their wisdom, and even their physical strength will do them no good against the coming judgment of God. In short, verse 2 through 9 tell us that Edom will certainly be judged. But in verse 10 through 14, we have a shift. If you see here, we have a, a new section that actually seems to kind of go back and provide evidence for why this judgment is taking place. Now, if you and I are reading along here, paying attention, uh, we probably think as, as much as we can that we already know why the judgment is coming against Edom. We understand it's because Edom's sin of pride, right? Because of their arrogance, because of their lofty opinion of themselves. Remember this, their pride of position and power and relationships and wisdom. I mean, isn't that the reason that God is bringing them down? Because of their pride in the face of an all-sovereign God? This little insight is going to prove to be very important in the weeks to come. But for now, let me quickly answer, yes, but there's more than that. In verses 10 through 14, Obadiah provides the evidence for, or you may say the cause of, the judgment that God is bringing on them. Look at verse 10 and 11, you're going to see what I mean. The first verse kind of gives it away. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Verse 10 is, is both a turn and an ex, kind of a, a summary introductory statement for what is to come in these next few verses. It turns from the judgment section, now telling us why they would be judged. And it summarizes Edom's problem, violence. Violence done to your brother Jacob. Obadiah tells us that Edom will be covered with shame and cut off forever. Now, you might know this, but in the ancient Near East, and even today, um, honor and shame was the currency of significance. I mean, to be honored or respected was everything, and to be shamed was to lose everything. Relevance, relationships, the flow of resources and opportunity, all is gone when one is shamed. And in an ironic twist, we watch as God covers arrogant Edom with a cloak of shame. 
Uh, if you read the Bible, you know that it often re- it talks about people who are in a state of shame and one comes to cover them up, to shield them from that, to somehow uh, stop that from happening. But here, instead of being able to shield others from their shame, God covers them with shame. So that when people look, they realize exactly who they are. Not only this, but God makes it clear that they are headed for complete and utter destruction. He says, these words, that they will be cut off forever. This is the death knell. This is the judgment that we see here that separates people from God. It is continually used in the Old Testament to explain the position of those who have sinned and separated themselves from the grace and love and protection of Almighty God. And all of this, Obadiah says, is because of, one word, violence. Now, you and I might think that that term has some sort of a singular definition, which it does, but here, as Edom uses it, it's not only that Edom is angry all the time or that they fight a lot, or they're constantly breaking out and hurting people. This is exactly what Obadiah means. The word violence, when used in this way, is a loaded, meaningful term. This is a way of summing up the character of Edom. The same term is used in several places throughout the Bible when the author is trying to help summarize much perverse evil that characterizes a group of people. I mean, we could look at Genesis 49 or Jeremiah 13, and we could understand how they summarize evil with this very term. But probably the most recognizable use of this term is found in Genesis 6, before the flood. God speaks to Noah and describes the conditions that all the people are in in terms of violence. Listen to verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. To say that Edom's sin was violence done to his brother Jacob was a way of summarizing all kinds of perverse evil. There's sometimes a tendency for us, if we're really honest here, just want to step away, to feel bad for those who are judged feel like somehow it's not right. I, th- I think that might be because we know we are the ones that also ought to be judged. But I want to make sure that we draw our attention to the way that God talks about their behavior. It is violence. It has gone past the idea of just a few sins, but f- shakes its fist in God's face. I want us to remember that the act of sin is never neutral. As those e- these actions over here are the bad ones, and these actions over here are the good ones. No. The reason sin is sin is because it's an affront to a holy, benevolent, loving, and gracious God. That is what sin is. It isn't as though God made up a ledger and said, these ones are good things, these are bad things. Don't do the bad things, do the good things. No, it's a direct affront to his character. And that is why this term here is affronting God and showing us that what they are doing is rebellion, defiance against a loving and gracious God. And so we need to see Edom for what they are, a rebellious, violent, wicked people, unwilling to repent and trust God. Edom has sinned against God ultimately, but here we see that Edom also has, has, um, has sinned against her brother, Jacob. We may wonder what he is referring to, but that's what we're going to find out in this coming verse. Verse 11 expands on verse 10. Take a look. Verse 11 tells us that there was a day in which Edom stood by or stood aloof while the enemies ravaged Judah. 
He says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Okay, let's stop for a moment here. What is he talking about exactly in this scenario? He hasn't given us a bunch of history. Obviously, the reader knows what's going on. Is Obadiah speaking in general terms to all the different problems that have ever existed between Esau and Jacob, between Judah and between Edom? Is that what he's referring to here? Or is he referring particularly to some particular event in history? Something in which Edom stood by and did nothing while some enemy brought destruction upon Israel. I'm going to argue the second thing. I think this is exactly what he's doing. He's showing us a very particular event of destruction for the people of Israel. So the question is, which event? What is he talking about here? Do we know anything about this? These verses, here's the answer that I can give you as best I can. These verses best describe what happened when Babylon came and captured Judah in 587 BC. We're talking about the southern kingdom. Israel's already been taken by Assyria. And we're talking about the southern kingdom, Judah. We're talking about when they were carried off into exile as judgment from God. Now, there are two other passages that encourage me towards this. One is found in Lamentations 4, and the other is in Psalm 137. In Lamentations, Jeremiah speaks to the destruction done to Judah. You know, he weeps. He's the weeping prophet, prophet lamenting. But in 421 and 22, he highlights the role of, guess who? Edom in that destruction. Also, I want to point you to Psalm 137. The psalmist laments the position of Judah after the Babylonian captivity. In verse 1, he says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. He goes on to lament, but eventually he gets to verse 7, says this, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Thus, from the continent we find in Obadiah, and these other passages, they put the pieces of the puzzle together. I think this is what Obadiah is referring to. That means that when we hear Obadiah tell the story of Edom standing aloof, we, the readers, join then with those who are hearing prophecy for the first time, start to think about the destruction that came to Judah at the Babylonian captivity as they took off the exiles. We should then sorrowfully grievously look back at a time when God's judgment came upon Judah by mighty Babylon, the military powerhouse. So, with that in our mind, that is the background, let's read verse 11 again. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Edom's first crime is complicity is doing nothing. Here we have them, the neighbors, actually brothers even. And when Babylon comes against Judah, Edom does nothing. No help, no sounding the battle cry, no weeping, no nothing. No, they stand by aloof. Edom stands by watching, in a sense, as Judah is being torn to pieces with a smirk on his face. Verse 11 gives us a high-level list of the things that are done to Judah. Strangers carry off wealth. Foreigners barge through the gates like they own the place. They even cast lots to see who would get what when it came to divvying up all the loot from Jerusalem. Let me stop off for a moment here. Are we guilty by any chance of some of the sins of Edom? Are there ever times that we stand idly by while someone else 
has tragedy happen to them? In one sense, when I think about this, Edom is playing the role of the Levite and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the ones who passed by. Instead of helping, they passed around for their own purposes. After the wounded man is passed up by Levite and priest, the unlikely candidate, the Samaritan, takes compassion on this dying man and nurses him back to life. He cares for him in his suffering. What an example for us. But perhaps you say, Chris, yeah, that's good. But, but Edom should have helped his brother Judah, of course. Yes, I mean, it's his brother. We're talking about different categories though here, right? The only application that we can find then is that we should be looking out for our brothers and sisters or maybe for Christians or maybe you could go as far as to say those that live around us, maybe our neighbors. <laughs> Do you remember the point of this parable? Do you remember that the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? The whole point of the parable here is actually helping us understand that all people are our neighbors. When hardship and wickedness abound and people are put in places of suffering, we must not stand idly by and do nothing. Again, I remind us of Jesus' words in Matthew 15, or 25. When he was asked, Lord, when did we feed you or clothe you or offer you a drink? Matthew 25, 40 reads this, and the king will answer them truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We must be a people of compassion, ready to act on behalf of others who are hurt and in need of our help. Well, we recognize that Edom shouldn't have stood by. Standing by while Judah is under attack is a bad enough, of course. But that's not the end of verse 11. Look at what it says here. Obadiah says that Edom, you were like one of them. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that maybe like because they stood by, they're complicit, and they might as well have been the ones that did it? No, that's not it. This actually is leading us to see that they are acting just like Babylon. They actually participated in the demise of Judah. This little phrase is actually leading us to keep reading. Look at verse 12 through 14. When we get here, something strange happens, I'll admit. The grammar changes. That sounds all nerdy, but when you're reading it, you're going to notice it too. All of a sudden, we've been talking about something that happened in the past, using past tense verbs, and all of a sudden, he switches to present tense commands. It's very strange. Not exactly sure what's going on. You'll see in verse 10, 11, and 15, Obadiah uses the past tense to describe the actions of Edom. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother. Verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. You were like one of them. Verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. But verse 12 through 14, these verses all have present tense commands. Listen even as I just talk about verse 12. Do not gloat. Do not rejoice. Do not boast. Now, I'll admit, when I first read this, I was trying to put the pieces together and see what he was trying to tell us. I was wondering if Obadiah was speaking to some other future event that Israel was going to go through, that Judah was going to have happened to them. But quickly, I abandoned, this, I abandoned this thought because there are too many similarities here in the content of verses 12 through 14 that match exactly what he said is happening in verse 11. We're going to see that all the things in verse 11 play out in verse 12 through 14. So then, the question still remains, why the switch to the present tense verbs and why now using these commands and then instead of descriptions? Well, both of these little features ought to tell us something. They help us understand what Obadiah is trying to do. By communicating these things as commands and doing it in the present tense, it's almost as if Obadiah transports us with him back 
to watch this happen as onlookers of what's happening right in front of us who are screaming at the characters, but they can't hear it. If you've ever watched maybe um, uh, Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol, you know that Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by these different spirits and he is whisked away to see different events, some in his past, some in his future, some in the present. At each of these, if you remember, there are times when he tries to communicate with the people like, don't do that or stop doing this or how are you? He's asking them questions, trying to communicate, but they can't hear him. It's almost as though they're phantoms. It's exactly right. He's, he's not actually there. He's seeing something as an observer. He is transported back or forward to observe what happened. That's almost exactly what's happening here. We're watching Obadiah, and he's taking us with him in verses 12 through 14. And we stand outside of time for a moment and observe as Edom takes part in the destruction of Judah. It's almost as though we are yelling at the screen, hey, don't do that, stop. They can't hear us. They have no idea. It's almost like he is saying, don't gloat over the day of your brother when the day of misfortune has come. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in their ruin. Uh, hey, stop, don't, don't boast in the day of distress. And we have another scene. It gets worse. He says it was something worse. This picture moves on. He says, no, 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 no. Don't enter the gate. He watches as they go in. Don't enter the gate. No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't gloat over this. And, and certainly don't start looting and taking all this with their calamity is going on. And then the scene changes again. He says, no, 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 no. No, you can't do this. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off the fugitives. Do not hand over the survivors in the day of distress. Stop doing what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's very dramatic, right? Uh, it's, it's very, uh, like again, almost he's making a play in front of them and showing this. Obadiah does this because he wants us to feel all the deeply disturbing treachery of Edom's actions. It's meant to make us, the readers or the listeners, to be transported back and feel the horror that was Edom's part in the Babylonian captivity. And so we stand experiencing with Obadiah all that Edom did to his brother. In verse 12, we watch as Edom gloats, rejoices, and even boasts in the day of Judah's distress. I mean, the poetry is really good here. He calls this event his brother's misfortune, ruin, distress. And then in verse 13, he repeats himself three times, calling it a calamity. The day of his calamity, the day of his calamity, the day of his calamity. Did you get it? The repetition is deafening. We get it. We hear the hammer drop, the steady pounding of the rhythm of disaster for Judah. Instead of helping Judah, or instead of being sorrowful for what has happened, Edom gloats. They open their mouths to speak hostility to their brother. They even rejoice. They're happy that Jacob is suffering. Even, Edom even boasts as though they have anything to do with their own position or the downfall of their brother. But it gets worse. In verse 13, we watch as Edom no longer stands by, but enters into the city of Jerusalem. So picture Babylon, right? They've gone in, they've had their way with Jerusalem, they've brought the city to the knees, they've pillaged their goods. They have captured their people. They've carried off all the things that they want. They've established authority, and they'll probably eventually leave uh, in getting back to doing the rest of their conquests. Either while this is happening or after this happens, Edom comes to the gates, trespasses, enters the city. For what reason? To take advantage of a broken and needy people. When they're down, they kick them. They enter the gates. They walk in with their chest puffed up. 
And they're ready to do what needs to be done, which is glean all the stuff that Babylon left. They took some stuff, but they left a bunch of stuff for us too. They profit from the destitution of the poor and need. You see how despicable this is? They take it from them. Perhaps they take food, maybe livestock. Certainly it's valuable possessions they can find some. They may even take people for slaves here. Edom has trespassed the Judean capital and stolen property for themselves. But it gets worse. In verse 14, the Edomites commit the unthinkable. Not only have they stood by, doing nothing to help their brother in distress, not only have they trespassed and stolen their brother's goods, but now we are transported with Obadiah to all the escape routes going away from the city, to all the roads, to all the paths that lead into the woods. It's normal for a conquered city to have those who would just barely escape the grasp of the conquerors, refugees, fugitives, survivors, These people will quickly take to the streets, go to the secret pathways, the countryside, fleeing their captors if they can. They would be on the run looking for shelter, looking eventually to find a place of refuge. This happened at Jerusalem. This happened when the Babylonians came in. This was the remnant who took to the streets, who ran to the countryside for safety, looking for a way to have refuge. Picture desperate people who have made it out of the city, who have packed a bag, anything they could carry, and somehow they've made it past the soldiers. Picture a people who have lost family, friends, all the people in their own tribes. They've lost their possessions and their homes and probably everything that they have. They are terrified, destitute, perhaps even wounded in the battle, running for their lives, moving quickly away from the city of Jerusalem. And just as they seem to be making headway, just when they think maybe they are making it far enough out that they're safe, they turn on the path and see the Edomites standing in the way. They see the people of Edom Edom, blocking their passage, weapons in hand, rope in hand, ready to carry them off into captivity back into Jerusalem to Babylon. Obadiah screams, no, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off the fugitive. What are you doing? How could you do this? The ones that survived, you hand them back over to the captors. What are you doing? Standing by, Doing nothing while your brother's under attack is bad enough, right? Stealing his goods is even worse, right? But this, how could you capture those who ran away, your brother, and turn him over to the Babylonians? Do you get it? Et tu, Brute? Even you, my brother, would turn me over for my destruction? Now, you'll remember that Jacob and Esau, who are the beginnings of these two nations, Judah and Edom, These brothers do not have a good past. Esau and Jacob were consistently in a struggle against one another. But over the years, Edom had proven to care very little about his brotherhood, about kinship. He hated him. He despised his family. He despised his father's God. Edom had consistently acted in an unbrotherly way and paid no heed to the call of God in his life. Both of the brothers knew what was expected of them. They knew the law. They understood what was going on, what was expected. Family ties or kinship was incredibly important. The narrative in Genesis 25 to 29 and also in 32 show us exactly how this plays out. In Deuteronomy 23, 7, God even reminds them, Israel, with these words, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother. But in the time of Jacob's greatest need, when Judah needed Edom the most, Edom struck out in violence to his brother. 
He stood by watching as Babylon ravaged Judah. He, Edom, mocked and gloated and boasted over Judah's demise. He even entered his city and stole the goods. He even helped in the capture of the fugitives and the survivors who fled the city. In other words, by the end of the Babylonian captivity, there is no question Edom is thoroughly and utterly wicked. We'd expect to see even a shred of remorse, maybe concern, maybe it would stop doing some of these things, but no, no, no. By the end of verse 14, we understand that Edom hates Judah and therefore hates God. This is why God is bringing judgment on Edom. This is why Edom can expect to be brought down low. Edom has hated God, puffed up his chest in pride, despised all the family ties, and sought after that which would please him without any concern for kindred or deity. Now, I want you for a moment to remove yourself from the book of Obadiah and think about what the Jews felt like in this time. Consider yourself a Judean for a minute. In the midst of all his destruction and betrayal and hopelessness, do not ask yourself, where is God? Where is he? Nothing's happening. No one's coming to help us. We're literally being left off here. What's going on? Let off to a new place. Does he not care about his people? Does he not know what's going on? Maybe he's aloof. Maybe he doesn't know what's going on. Does, does God know that Edom is getting away with this kind of stuff? You may have heard of the term lex talionis. It means the law of retaliation. Exodus 21, 23 through 25. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Justice, right? Or let me put it in a more New Testament language way. Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Guys, we, we cannot miss this lesson. The God of creation is sovereign and he sees all. There is no part of his creation that he doesn't know what's going on. In our deepest distress, in our darkest hour, in our worst suffering or persecution, our God sees and knows. Our God is present and watching and he is not without steadfast love and compassion. Notice the words used in verse 13. It's not incidental. He uses a term of endearment, of covenant faithfulness to refer to the sufferers. He says, do not enter the gate of my people. This is a term calling out, they are mine. They are bound to me. I will have them as my own. God has not left Judah to rot alone and afraid. Consider Psalm 139, 7 through 8. You guys know this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Listen to verse 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you find out as he goes on that there's never been a time, never one of our days that he has not known us. We are not hidden from him. He sees all. This is the God of creation who is our God. There's a message of hope and confidence for the Christian today, a message that our God is sovereign over all things, a watchful eye and the confidence that the law of sowing and reaping will be executed. 
Take heart, Christian. We will suffer at the hands of others, but our God will have the final word. In response to all that Judah has suffered from Edom, look at verse 15. Obadiah pronounces these ominous words. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Now I understand that this message this morning of sowing and reaping, the message of a sovereign God who will answer all wrongs with judgment, may not be a comfort to you at all. Because you, like me, understand at least in part the wickedness of your own heart. In fact, there's a real problem for every single human being. You guys know it as there is none righteous, no, not one. Every single human being has sinned against God, has rebelled against his creator, has placed himself on the throne. So the question, is lex talionis only applicable applicable to really wicked people, people like Edom? No. All men. It's applicable to every person. We will make a huge mistake today, guys, if we walk away thinking the same thing and saying, I'm sure glad I'm not Edom. It's a good thing I go to church. It's a good thing I can be called a Christian or else, man, I'm glad I'm not like those wicked people who did this kind of stuff. I've never betrayed anyone. Sure, I'm glad about that. I want you to hear me very clearly this morning. We, we are people who deserve the same judgment that Edom received. We are people who have sinned against God and must pay for those sins. We are people who are desperately wicked. And I probably don't have to convince all of us because we are going through the list of different sins that we've even committed in the last week, if not our whole lifetimes. We are people who are desperately wicked. So my question is, must we then reap what we have sown? Must it come back on us? I know the payment for my sin is clear. The wages of sin is death. The question is, how then can I escape this death, this destruction, this rightful judgment? Friend, it is only through the atoning death of Jesus Christ our Lord, who has received the wrath of God, poured out on him, the judgment of God for our sin on him on the cross. The sin that brought that judgment was so rightly to be judged me and you, but instead Christ took our place. It's only by turning to him in faith, trusting, loving, worshiping him and him alone that there can be salvation and joy, not as the first king above many, no, 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 as the only king. He is exclusive. All others are just created things. They're creatures. Christ alone is king, and if we do not treat him as such, we are idolaters. Turn to him and him alone. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. But, but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Repent. Trust this God alone for your salvation. You do not have to end as Edom did. You can end up like Nineveh who heard the same story and repented, understood. Receive Christ and live. Christian brother or sister, you must walk in grace today, knowing that God in Jesus Christ has graciously given you life. He has taken our judgment and granted us forgiveness. Make no mistake, it 
we, about it. We, we are just like the Edomites. We deserve this judgment. It is only because he is a gracious and loving king that he sent Jesus for us. You and I know that we deserve the punishment of Edom, but because of God's grace, we trust him and we are promised the justice and salvation of Israel. Let's pray together. Dear God, we are so thankful for your grace. We are so thankful that you are a sovereign God. When we experience the wickedness of this world, we are thankful that there will be a day when you answer that wickedness with judgment. But God, we do not wish judgment on others because we know ourselves are worthy of judgment. And so we pray that your word would go throughout all the earth and that you would cause repenters to spring up and trust you that worship Christ as king. We thank you for your love and ask that we would bask in the glory of Jesus, that we would be low and that he would be high. Lord, please make us worshipers and those who would tell of this message. We thank you for the confidence that we have in you. We pray for your glory and honor throughout all the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.